so much, Annalyn. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Uh, it really is fun for me to get to come and do presentations like this. I oftentimes will tell people, as a counselor, I've often realized how finite a person I am, and I can work with only a certain number of people every week. I only have so many hours in a week. But when I get to come and do presentations like this and get to share information with other people who then can use it in their homes or they might even go out and share it with somebody else, that information goes so much further beyond my office. And so it really excites me to get to come and share information with parents such as yourself. So thank you so much for taking time out to come and join us tonight. Um, like Annalyn said, I am Dana Dahl and I do attend Christ Communities Olathe Campus. We've been attending there for about 10 years now. And my husband Kevin and I have been married 24 years and we have two sons. Um, I call them emerging adults. <laughs> uh, TJ, our older son, is 20, which is just strange for me to say I have a 20-year-old son. Uh, and he is in his third year at K-State. He is a double major in physics and secondary education, so he hopes to go on and teach high school AP physics, which is a very specialized area of interest. So we'll see where he ends up after school. And then Trevor, our younger son, is a senior this year at Olathe Northwest. So we're getting really, really close to that empty nest phase. So we bought a motorcycle. That seemed like a really great idea. <laughs> so when I am not at work, I really enjoy hanging out with my family. I tell my boys, I genuinely like you and I genuinely like being with you. So anytime I can, I like to hang out with them. We like to play games, we do movie nights, uh, we like to go on walks together. And then when I'm not with family, sometimes even when I am with family, I love photography. I'm not very good at it, but I tell people I like to capture joy. And so whether that is the joy of a sunset or a sunrise or a joy of a child that's hit a baseball for the first time, um, or even the joy of my kids as they're playing in the marching bands. I love to capture joy with my photography. And then I like to put them in scrapbooks, which I have way too many pictures to ever go in scrapbooks. That's the beauty of digital stuff. I just get to keep them all. 
And then I also enjoy playing the piano. And like I said, my husband and I do enjoy riding our motorcycle. Um, we're not brave enough to do the freeway quite yet, but we have done quite a few road trips of finding the back roads and seeing what we can see that way. So that's a little bit about me. I'd love to know just a little bit about who's here tonight. I'm making an assumption that if you are here, you probably have children or you are the caregivers to some children. So I would love to know how many of you have kiddos in the infant to say four years of age, age range. Okay, all right, quite a few of you. How about the five-ish through elementary school age? Okay, all right, middle school? All right, how many have high schoolers? Not yet, okay. You'll get there all too quickly, I promise. <laughs> well, again, I am so excited to be with you. Thank you again for taking time out tonight. No matter what stage of parenting you are in currently, I hope that you'll find some information tonight that's gonna to be useful for you. Um, and certainly as our kids grow and change and develop, we get to the opportunity to apply these concepts in different ways. A lot of the concepts will stay the same or at least similar. We just apply them differently as they get older. So tonight, like Annalyn said, we're gonna focus on communication and especially communication around emotions with the goal of helping you all deepen your relationships with your children, okay? All right. Oh, there's my family. I forgot I had a picture. So this is TJ, our 20-year-old, and this is Trevor, our senior, and then that's my husband, Kevin. So communication. We are communicating all the time. The only question is, what are we communicating? And I guess there's two questions. What are we communicating? And are we actually communicating what we think we are communicating or intend to be communicating? And I'm excited to be able to talk with parents about communication because effective communication between a parent and a child actually lays the foundation for that child then to be able to have effective communication skills in all of their relationships as they grow older. And when communication is helpful and effective between parents and child, that child oftentimes grows up feeling heard and understood valued and respected, they tend to have more confidence in themselves, and they tend to be more cooperative just in general. So communication is such a critical and vital part of our relationship with our kids. I wanted to spend just a short little bit of time talking about the brain. Uh, I want to also pl put in a little plug, and Annalyn, I am totally blanking, it's October 14th. Okay, great. Like, oh, I'm not sure I'm remembering right. But October 14th, um, Dr. Kurt Thompson is going to be here, and he'll be doing a presentation. Uh, he is a specialist in brain development. And if you want to know more about the brain and how it impacts our relationships, both with others and with ourselves, I would highly encourage you to consider attending his presentation. We're very fortunate that he's going to be here um, doing that presentation for us. But for tonight's purposes, I want to just talk briefly about the difference between our right brain and our left brain and how they work together in communication. So our right brain is the primary spot where our nonverbal communication is perceived and generated. So when we're talking about nonverbal communication between a person and another person, that's happening between my right brain and your right brain. So that's what's going on there. Our left brain then is responsible for our actual language choice and for registering what are those words that are coming at me. So on a, a word uh, level, that communication is happening between my left brain and your left brain. Now here's the difference. The right brain is much faster than the left brain. Now when you look at this, 
It says processes other person's nonverbals in one tenth of a second. Okay, like to us, we're like, man, that's like really super fast, and it is. But when we look over here and it says the left brain doesn't kick in for two tenths of a second, we still tend to think that's really fast, and it is. But in brain terms, it's actually kind of slow. So our right brain is kicking in much faster than our left brain, which means that we are perceiving and interpreting and already beginning to respond to the nonverbal information that's coming towards us long before we're ever registering any words. Okay? So when we're communicating, oftentimes we start out thinking, I am communicating what I think I'm communicating because here are the words that I'm using. But we're communicating so much more than that before our words ever register, which is why it is so important for us to be aware of ourselves and for us to tune in to what's actually going on with all of me, not just my word choice. My husband and I have this kind of going back and forth banter. I'll, I kind of alluded to him in my Facebook thing, uh, the little blurb that I did where I said, some of you might be thinking emotions. Yeah, great, awesome, I can do this. Some of you might be thinking emotions. Maybe. And others of you are going, emo, what? I don't think I own any of those. That would be my husband, okay? And so he will often say, I'll, I'll ask him, so what's going on for you right now? Nothing, I'm fine. I'm like, oh, no, 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 you're not. Because my right brain is picking up on something. His words are saying, I'm fine, everything's great. And my right brain's going, no, 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 it's not. So we've got to be aware of this and be aware of what is happening for ourselves when we are communicating with another person. Again, it bears repeating that if our nonverbals and our verbals don't match, the person we're communicating with may never actually register our verbals. They may only register their nonverbal perceptions. Okay. So thinking about communication and how we receive information and how we process information in communication, there's always facts of a situation, okay? Facts would be things that if I had 10 people lined up observing the same situation, they would all agree on those things, okay? So I could say, I am standing in front of a group of people right now. That would be something that probably would be really hard for someone to argue with, okay? I could count how many people are in the room and say there's that number of people in the room sitting in front of me. Those would be facts, okay? Another fact of the situation is I'm talking. Right? Now, one thing that is up for determination is whether I'm saying anything of benefit. Okay? I might say, yeah, I'm, having, I'm doing this great speech and it's awesome and wonderful and it's gonna be applicable and somebody else is sitting out there going, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Okay? So whether the, what the quality of my speech is right now is an opinion, it is not a fact. Right? So in any given situation, we have facts. Those facts are received by us through a filter. That filter contains our personality, it's kind of how we're wired, how we perceive the world, how we interact with the world generally, and all of our lifetime experiences. It's a really full filter. Okay? There's a lot of stuff in there. But those facts then are received by us through that filter, and we make an interpretation of the facts based on what's in our filter. And then based on that interpretation or our thoughts about the facts, we experience emotions about the facts. And then this is where we make a decision or have a response, a behavior. Okay? So we do something in response to those emotions. Now, 
that is the only part of this process that is outwardly visible to the other person. All of this stuff back here is happening within ourselves. So the other person doesn't have privy to that. They, they don't know all that interpretation stuff that's going on behind the filter, so to speak. So what can happen is we've got two people here who are in communication with each other. And this person over here sends a message. They have an idea of what they think they've just said or what they're trying to communicate. But this person is receiving that information through their filter. So there's interpretation going on, there's an emotional response going on, and then they're going to respond out of that emotional reaction. Now, if that emotional response and that interpretation matched what the original sender thought they were communicating, we have a great communication going on. We have a dialogue, we have a conversation. However, if this person is responding out of an interpretation that is different from what the sender thought they were communicating, Eventually, we have this, an explosion that happens, okay? Because there was a miscommunication. There was not understanding. So what we'd like to do instead is we'd like to have something that looks like this. So this person sends the message, what they think they're communicating. This person receives it, they interpret it, they experience emotions about it, and if they notice, ooh, I'm having this heightened emotional response to this and it feels kind of uncomfortable. Ideally, what they could do then is say, what I think I hear you saying is, summarize what you just thought the other person said, is that correct? And that gives the other person the opportunity to clarify. Now, if they say yes, that's exactly what I meant to communicate, that's one thing, okay? That means the emotions, the response might have been justified and warranted. If, however, they say, oh, no, 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 that's not at all what I meant to say, then there's the opportunity for clarification. And we can keep going back and forth like this until we, we reach understanding. Now, notice it doesn't say agreement because you may not agree with each other, and that's okay. But what we're working towards is understanding, truly knowing what this other person was trying to communicate and being able to have a dialogue and a conversation about that. Okay. So that's communication 101, how we deal with filters or how, how filters experience, we experience that. When we talk about communication just in general, we can think in terms of these three categories. Okay. So we have passive communication, assertive communication, and aggressive. And I'm going to talk about these kind of out of order here a little bit, starting with passive. Passive communication is often characterized by a lack of respect for one's self. It prioritizes the other person over my needs. It oftentimes conceals my own wishes or needs, the things that I actually need or the things that I want. Oftentimes, but not always, is soft-spoken and quiet, kind of that, okay, if you, if you say so, type approach. And they may be open to being taken advantage of. Okay, because they don't speak up for what their needs are. Right? On the other side of that slide then is aggressive communication, which typically is characterized by a lack of respect for the other person. So passive is a lack of respect for myself. Aggressive communication is a lack of respect for the other person. An aggressive communicator oftentimes acts like a bully. They're perceived as a bully. They're oftentimes focusing only on their own needs 
Oftentimes, but not always, they're louder, at least overbearing, more dominant in their presentation. And they may use criticism, humiliation, domination in their communication. And oftentimes, they are unwilling to compromise. So that would be aggressive communication. And then there in the middle, we have assertive communication, which shows a respect both for oneself and the other person. So it allows for the needs of both people to be met. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to agree. I want to emphasize that. But it looks at both individuals have needs and both individuals are important. They have value and they deserve to be treated with respect. Assertive communication clearly expresses my own needs while respecting the others. It's confident, even if it's difficult. It says, this is what I need and it's okay for me to ask for that and willing to compromise when needed. When we're talking with children about these different types of communication, I like to use Goldilocks language. So cold would be passive communication, hot would be aggressive communication, and just right would be assertive communication. So cold is passive, hot is aggressive, and just right is assertive. When it comes to communication, I have just a few tips for you all, and please know this is by no means an exhaustive list, okay? This is just a starting point, um, some things for you to consider and pay attention to in your communication in general, but also especially with your kids. So first up there, start working on your communication early in the relationship. We communicate all the time. Remember I said that at the very beginning? And so we are communicating from the time a child is placed in our arms for the very first time. And so being aware of what am I communicating with my face? What am I communicating with my body? What am I communicating with my tone of voice? Long before your child ever understands a word you've actually said. Okay? Once they start learning words and you can add that component, all of the nonverbal stuff is still important. Can't let that go away. But then we start adding the understanding and the knowledge that comes with words. Now, some of you, if your kids are a little bit older, you might be thinking, oh, have I missed the opportunity? Absolutely not. Okay? It is never, ever too late to start practicing effective communication with your children. The older your children get, the more difficult it might be, okay? Because then we're starting to deal with adolescent development where you know parents aren't cool anymore and they'd rather be with their friends. But keep trying. Don't ever give up because it's always, always worth it. Always important. The next tip up there, be available when the other person wants to talk as much as possible, okay? My kids oftentimes, in fact, Trevor will stu still do it today. We're getting ready to go to bed, we're doing our family devotions, we're done with devotions, I'm ready to send him off to his room, and all of a sudden now he wants to talk about everything that happened that day. Now sometimes parents would say, oh, he's just stalling. No, nope, actually, that is his prime time when he wants to talk. And so I have had to learn that, okay, whew, I was ready to go to bed, <laughs> give him my attention for at least a little bit because this is really golden opportunity to connect with him, to value him and to communicate that he is important to me. Uh, for our kids also, TJ, if there was ever a time when he said, hey mom, could we go for a walk? I would do my best to drop everything and we went for a walk because that was my cue. He's got something he wants to talk about. 
for Trevor, it's oftentimes when we're driving and he's behind the wheel. <laughs> and then all of a sudden he's like, ah, oh, I wanna tell you stuff, I wanna talk. So pay attention. Each child may have different times, but if you notice, oh, my kiddo really likes to talk or really opens up in this situation or this setting, First of all, be prepared when you're in that situation and setting, they're probably gonna open up. And secondly, consider, are there ways that I can create that opportunity more often so that we have more chances to communicate well? Just real quick, but yeah. with younger kids, like bedtimes tend to be, at least in my home, more sensitive. Sure. And mm -hmm. that is exactly how my oldest is. I mean, she opens up and the vulnerabilities come out and I am mm -hmm. like, already a little late to bedtime, mm -hmm. 7.40, mm -hmm. you know, and then she's ready to like spill her heart and I'm kind of mm -hmm. like, Absolutely. Great question. Because so I want to be available. I don't want to shut her down. Mm -hmm. I don't want to give her the wrong message. Sometimes I do say, you know, what you're saying is really important. Let's talk about it in the morning. But mm -hmm. at the same time, she that's not her time to talk. Sure. Like, yep. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yep. My brain doesn't process well in the morning either. <laughs> so the question was basically what happens if your kid's prime time to talk and share is bedtime? and they really legitimately need to go to bed, okay? That is a valid concern and a valid issue for sure. So you've already actually mentioned one great strategy of saying, what you are telling me right now is so important to me, I wanna be able to give it the attention that it deserves. I'm really tired right now, so let's put this on hold. Now, when you put it on hold until, that can be a discussion. Um, maybe it's, you know, let's talk about it tomorrow night. And then maybe we need to write it down so that we remember what was important. Maybe it's we talk about it on the drive to school. Maybe it's we talk about it at dinner time. But being able to say, gosh, like I really wanna pay attention right now, but I'm having a hard time keeping my eyes open and you are important enough to me, I wanna hear it all, so let's talk about it at another time. So that's one possible option. Another possible option might be saying, okay, if you could tell me three things about this situation, whatever it is, what would be the three most important things you'd wanna tell me about it? And that way you kind of streamline the story a little bit. Um, I've also heard of parents who will set a timer and say, you can tell me as much as you want and I will listen and give you my undivided attention for the next 10 minutes. When that timer goes off, whatever you're telling me, we'll have to put it on hold until another time. And those are just three examples. Those are by no means the only examples or the only right ways to do it. You guys are limited only by your own creativity. So that might be if, if you're needing more ideas, maybe connect with some other parents in here and say, hey, what have you tried? And see what other ideas might come up from that. Great question. Thank you for asking that. Yeah. Other questions right here while we're kind of paused a little bit? No? Okay, all right. Um, yeah, see if there's anything else I wanna say about being available. Oh yes, so if you don't know the answer to a question, tell them you don't know the answer to the question. <laughs> there is nowhere that it says parents have to know everything, even though we want our kids to think that we do. Sometimes it goes a long ways to say to your child, that is an amazing question, and I actually don't know if I have a good answer to it, so let me do a little bit of thinking on it or let me do a little bit of research about it and I'll get back with you tomorrow or I'll get back with you when I have an answer for it. Please make sure if you use that option though that you actually circle back around to them because that communicates volumes. Yes? So actually I do have a question. Uh -huh. We have a kid that just talks all the time. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of hard to sift through like the oh I'm just pointing everything out and mm -hmm. I'm actually saying something. Mm -hmm. 
as in 95 percent. Uh-huh, uh-huh, sure. So how would you, do you have any yeah, excellent. So the question basically was, what do you do with a kiddo who talks all the time? How do you know when, okay, I need to actually tune in versus when I can kind of tune out a little bit? I had an experience with that um, with TJ, my older son, when he was four. We were driving in a car and literally from the time we got in the car until I said something, it was question after question after question after question. And I finally, like, I had reached my limit. And I said, TJ, why do you keep asking me so many questions? And he did not miss a beat. He said, Mom, because asking questions is a great way to find things out. I'm like, oh, man, you're right. <laughs> what do I do with that? And so for me then, it was a realization of, okay, these questions are his way of processing his engagement with the world around him. It's actually a really great thing. So when your kiddo is noticing, like they're just talking, they're trying to figure out, trying to identify, okay, what are they processing right now? And sometimes if you could even say to them, I hear you saying a lot right now. Is there something important that you want me to be listening to? Or is there something that you want me to give you some feedback about? And so that way you kind of know, okay, what do I need to tune into here? Um, and it's okay to at times say, we need to take five minutes to let our voices rest or we need to take five minutes to let our minds rest. Because that's, that's an important thing too. We need rest, even from the great engagement of the world that our kids are doing. Excellent question. And again, please, I, I wanna say this again. These are just ideas. I hope that you'll take these as like jumping off points and not be limited by, by my thoughts, but please expand on them, create new ideas and just run with it. Um, another thing that I have here in my notes, it's okay to set limits around questions, like two questions at a time, a question jar, a time limit, that sort of thing. Um, but you wanna be really careful that in doing that, you're not belittling or devaluing their questions because again, it's their way of engaging their world and it's actually a really cool process to be able to be a part of and to observe. We want to work to create openness in our communication with our kids, expressing love, respect, and acceptance for our child as they ask questions and as they share their ideas. And the more we can do that, the more likely they are to share that with us. And believe me, as a mom now who has launched one and I'm, I'm working on the second one, having that relationship where they want to talk to me as a parent is invaluable as they start to transition out of our house. So building that when they're young is critical. Speak to the other person on their level, developmentally and physically. The physically piece is really easy. Get down on their level. Make sure that you're not towering over them. And it's not always possible. Like sometimes you're in the middle of doing something in the kitchen or whatever, and you, you can't literally get down on their level. But as much as you can, make sure that you are down, using eye contact, looking them in the face, letting them see your facial expressions, and communicating again, right brain to right brain, I am in tuned with you, I am paying attention to you, you matter to me and I value you. When it comes to developmentally appropriate languaging, uh, make sure that you're using words that your kiddo actually understands. Now, there is, there's this kind of sweet spot of obviously we want to grow and expand our children's vocabulary and so that's introducing new words using bigger words there's nothing wrong with that but when it comes to making sure that they're understanding what you're saying making sure that we're using wording that they're familiar with is helpful and then be careful not to use too many words 
I have a problem with that. <laughs> I can talk all day long. And so recognizing what is my bottom line message that I need to communicate here and how can I do that in the fewest, most appropriate words can help make sure that that communication is just a little bit more clear. When we're choosing language, language that supports children is characterized as non-judgmental. It provides objective information. And it's okay to give opinions too from time to time, but we wanna make sure that there's objective information there. It's tentative and flexible, which allows for mistakes. It allows for differing opinions. Uh, I've interacted sometimes with people who state their opinions as fact and newsflash, we all do. <laughs> and so paying attention and making sure like, am I communicating my opinion right now as if it's fact? Or am I leaving room for the idea that my kiddo might have a different perspective on a particular topic or situation? And then we wanna make our languaging specific to the situation, avoiding words like always and never. We wanna be able to try and find the strength or the positive, even in difficult situations. Um, oftentimes it's easier to focus on what went wrong or what was challenging or difficult, but we wanna make sure that we're also looking at what was positive in this, um, especially when it comes to our kiddos' characteristics, their personal attributes, and we wanna make sure that we are affirming those. And then I wanted to introduce you to the acronym PACE. It stands for Playfulness, Acceptance, Curiosity, and Empathy. With playfulness, it is so helpful to incorporate lightheartedness into our conversations when possible. And it can't always be lighthearted and playful, but as much as we can, that helps create that um, kind of tenderness in a relationship between a parent and child. So playfulness, allowing our kids to be kids. There is, again, there's this, this I, I hate the word balance, but I'm gonna use it anyway. <laughs> there, I'll, I'll say sweet spot. There's a sweet spot between helping our kids grow and mature and appreciating and acknowledging and valuing and cherishing where they are at right now, being present with them in this very moment in this developmental stage, whatever stage that happens to be for them. Acceptance of the person, not always necessarily the ideas. You do not have to agree with your child to communicate, I accept you and I value you. Okay. And then curiosity, genuinely seeking to understand the other person's experience, their ideas, their perspective. Um, it can be really challenging as adults to take a child's perspective because we have however many years of life experience and we have fully developed brains. And so it's easy for us to look at our child's experience and go, oh, it'll be okay in five years or tomorrow you're gonna wake up, you're not even gonna remember what happened. But for our kids, because they don't have fully developed brains yet, and they don't have as much life experience as we do, what they're experiencing right now is their reality. And so if a kiddo says to you, I had the worst day ever, as an adult, you might be thinking, well, actually three weeks ago was worse. And you know, there are gonna be some hard times growing up, wait until you're a teenager, all that stuff, wait until you have to adult, but doesn't matter, okay? When your kid says, I had the worst day ever, they probably did because that's their frame of reference. And so being able to take their perspective, being genuinely curious about their experiences is invaluable in communication. I also like to encourage people to learn how to ask good questions. 
The question, how was your day today, is a very common question, and it is actually an extremely hard question to answer for kiddos. It's even hard for some adults to answer because it's a really big, really vague, well, are you talking about how was the food that I ate for breakfast? Are you talking about how was the weather when I was on recess? Are you talking about how was the spelling? Like, what are you talking about? So learning to ask really good questions helps open up that communication. So open-ended questions, but questions that are specific. Here are some examples. What was the best part of your day today? What was the worst part of your day today? Or what was the most challenging part of your day today? Tell me about something that made you laugh today at school. Tell me about something that you thought was really boring today at school. Tell me about something that your friend did that you wanted to do with them. So very, very specific, but it leaves, it's open-ended, so it leaves a lot of room for elaboration. And then as your child answers, you can ask additional detail questions to get them to open up even more. And then lastly, empathy. I mentioned perspective taking, um, suspending our adult judgment, our adult perspective of, okay, kid, when you have to adult, it's gonna be so much different. You know, Kids don't care about that. Kids don't have frame of reference. I like to say they don't have cubby holes to file that information away in yet. And so helping them to, to feel valued um, by taking their perspective. And then listen, really listen. And all of these things are components of that, but make eye contact, I already mentioned that. Do your best to minimize distraction. I know it's hard, especially if you've got multiple kiddos, especially if your kiddo is trying to talk to you as you're trying to do dinner or something else that has to get done at a certain time. I know this is challenging, but to the best of your ability, minimizing distractions. Uh, be present in the moment, not two steps ahead, not thinking about how you're going to respond, not thinking about how, oh my goodness, like we've got a discipline because that shouldn't have happened. Be present in the moment to the best of your ability. And then paraphrase what you heard to your child so that they hear your understanding of what they just said. And if you've misunderstood, then they can clarify. So going back to that filters diagram that I had of, oh, what you just said to me, what I think I heard you say was, or it sounds like, summarize, was that correct? Like, did I hear you right? And then let them say yes or no and correct you in that. Oftentimes when I'm talking to parents about communication, about especially pace um, and all those four components, they will ask, but when do I actually parent my kid? And what they usually mean by that is when do I teach? When do I discipline? When do I correct? Like, when do I do all these things that are part of our parents' job and our role? I like to say, first and foremost, remember that not every moment has to be a teaching moment. Sometimes connecting with our child needs to be our priority. And there are plenty of opportunities for learning and teaching. Sometimes we just need to focus on connection. And then when you are disciplining, it's really helpful to start with empathy first. So recognizing the child's emotions, recognizing how difficult the situation was for them, taking their perspective, recognizing, yeah, you really thought that was unfair. I get that. If I were in that situation, I probably would have felt that too. So having empathy for their experience before you discipline. 
And then as children age, it can be helpful, helpful to ask what kind of interaction they are needing from you in the moment. Is this a time when you just really want me to listen? Or is this a time when you want me to give you some feedback? So that way you know what are they coming to you for and you're not automatically assuming, oh, this is my teaching moment. No, actually they just needed you to listen and affirm or validate. Again, this is not an exhaustive list, uh, but hopefully it's good kind of stepping off points and gives you some things to think about um, moving forward. Okay. All right, we are going to take a quick break. Anna Lynn, how long? Five minutes? Yep, awesome, great. Um, does anybody have any questions before we go to break? We'll we will have time for questions at the end as well, so. Okay, yeah. So back to the um, giving kids perspective, do you ever at any point, so I'll give you an example. Uh -huh. So like our middle schooler, if she's struggling to connect with a teacher, mm -hmm. and so mm -hmm. you know, you're, you're getting the constant story of being upset how hard this class is mm -hmm. and you, you listen to it is it ever appropriate to say like you know like this is life mm -hmm. you're gonna you're going to come into contact maybe in your job or mm -hmm. even as you age with other teachers to yeah. speak that like, yep to give her like a fuller picture of like this will continue yes like, you maybe loved your teachers before uh-huh <laughs> like, uh -huh. yeah this, this dream isn't Absolutely, yes. So the question basically was, is it ever appropriate to basically give your child a reality check? So the example was if they maybe loved their teacher the year before and then they have a harder teacher that's more challenging, they can't connect with quite as well, um, to be able to say to them, you know what, there's going to be other times moving forward when you're going to have to deal with difficult people. You're not always going to get along with everybody that you meet. And the answer to your question is yes. There are definitely times when that is appropriate and I would say necessary and important. I would say it's most helpful, again, to lead with empathy in those situations. So gosh, honey, I really hear how frustrated you are today or I hear how sad you were when that happened. Would it be okay if I shared with you some of my perspective? Would it be okay with you if I shared a story about when I was in middle school? Or, um, you know, gosh, like I hear it's really hard. And what are you learning? Like what skills do you have that are helping you? Because those are going to be important skills when you have this situation again. So lots of ways that you could address that, but absolutely appropriate. And I encourage you to lead with empathy first. Great question. All right, well, let's go ahead and take a break. Um, so I have 718, so <laughs> like 23 after, um, we'll get started back up again. All right, I'm gonna go ahead and get started. Sorry to interrupt the good conversations that's going on. Gonna shift directions just a little bit here. Obviously been focusing on communication. Now we're gonna shift to primary focus of emotions. Keep in mind all the stuff that we've already talked about, okay? So well, I wanted to introduce the idea that there's two different types of emotions, primary and secondary emotions. And there's differing opinions on how many primary emotions actually exist. But for the purposes of tonight, we're gonna use the five that are depicted in the movie Inside Out, which I was really excited to hear the kids downstairs are watching. Um, so when we're generally talking about primary emotions we're going to be talking about joy sadness fear disgust and anger okay primary emotions are present from birth so you can hold an infant 
newborn baby and they will be able to display these different emotions. Okay, so they are hardwired into us. They are commonly direct reactions to an external event. Okay, so if I'm joyful, it's usually because something pleasant has been happening around me. I'm enjoying that. Um, sadness is typically because I've lost something. Um, it can be tangible or intangible. So if I lose my wedding ring, I would feel sad. Um, if I lose a relationship, I would also feel sad. There's loss involved there. Fear is typically when something dangerous is happening or could happen, the perception of that. Disgust is when something offensive has happened. Um, and then anger, typically we experience when we have perceived something as being unfair or unjust. So these primary emotions tend to diminish once that triggering event subsides. So whatever has triggered it, once that is over, typically the emotions will, will subside as well. The difference between primary and secondary emotions uh, can sometimes be com confusing because sometimes primary emotions are also experienced as secondary emotions, okay? So just know that there is some overlap here. But in general, when we're talking about secondary emotions, we typically are talking about emotions that fit these descriptions. So first of all, they're learned in relationship with others. They are not innately hardwired into us. So consider the experience of feeling embarrassed. Okay, I'm sure all of you could think of a time when you felt embarrassed. Okay? Maybe examples might be coming out of a bathroom with toilet paper stuck to your shoe, having a piece of lettuce stuck in your teeth after lunch, leaving your house with two different shoes on, um, or stumbling over your words during a speech. In all of those examples, the person had to be told, or in some other way, they had to learn that the circumstances that they were experiencing should produce the feeling of embarrassment. And the feeling of embarrassment is only present when someone else is there to witness the event. Okay? So that's very much a relational interaction emotion. Secondary emotions are sometimes a reaction to primary emotions. So this is the experience of having feelings about my feelings. So for example, consider the experience of feeling angry when you're actually feeling afraid, but you feel angry that you feel afraid because you've been told that showing fear is a sign of weakness. Okay. Another example would be feeling afraid when you become disappointed because you have a history of losing control when you express anger. Okay. So we can have those feelings about feelings and then those feelings about the feelings are the secondary feelings, okay? Secondary feelings tend to increase even after the triggering event is over. So primary emotions, once the triggering event is done, those emotions tend to subside. Secondary emotions tend to linger. And that's often because we're experiencing the emotions as a reaction to other emotions. Um, but because the emotion is tied to our reaction to an event, not just actually the event, that emotion will linger even when the event is gone. It's no longer about the toilet paper. <laughs> it's no longer about the lettuce in my teeth. It's about my reaction to that. Just a quick question. Yeah. So my daughter tends to almost be opposite. Like okay. she experienced embarrassed, gets embarrassed, and then anger comes. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. we're at soccer practice and she's trips. And I mean, you don't ask her how she is because then the anger comes and she blows up. So mm -hmm. we just learned. Mm -hmm. And ever since she's little, she was not one that runs to you to want to be held. Mm -hmm. You leave her alone, you give her her space. Mm -hmm. It's very 
it takes time to get used to, you know, mm -hmm. and you have to almost warn people around you. Like, so what would be the primary to the embarrassed part? Because we're usually like, it's okay, accidents happen. Like, we mm -hmm. totally blow it off. Mm -hmm. or, so for her, it's almost reversed. Mm -hmm. you know what I'm Yes, and uh, say the question again. Sorry, I told you I would forget to do it. <laughs> so in, in a situation that was... Basically, when the secondary emotion comes before the primary. Mm -hmm. like yep. Anger is that primary, mm -hmm. but the embarrassed happens, which triggers the anger. Right. So, yep, so how do you respond when you are aware of that, that secondary emotion happening first, and then this, the primary emotion comes? Absolutely. So it's looking at what triggered that primary emotion, okay? So if I felt embarrassed, well, why did I feel embarrassed? What was happening? And then how does that connect to, oh, so I was angry. What was I angry about? So again, it's that empathy, it's that curiosity, like what was happening when you experienced that embarrassment? Over the yep, so okay, and so. Embarrassing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. So, and even with that, like I could go several different layers down below that of, okay, so you were embarrassed because you felt like you would be judged. Right. So you were actually afraid yes. of being judged. So the primary emotion is actually fear. Got it. So really, mm -hmm. so. Yeah. Fear is her primary, mm -hmm. which is her, it's her biggest barrier. Yep, absolutely. Yep. Fear, anxiety, worry about being rejected, especially in middle school. Well, yeah. we have a saying in our family, do you want to choose faith or fear? Mm -hmm. And so, because you can't have both at the same time. Mm -hmm. So whenever I encourage them to do something new or something like that, so I think, take. I mean, she's very, I think for her age, very emotionally aware, and she can have very um, mature discussions about mm -hmm. feelings. Mm -hmm. um, so... That makes sense to me. That's what her primary is. Because mm -hmm. it's not anger. Anger right. is not her primary. Yep. It's yep. fear. That's yeah. what we are constantly working on. Yeah. And that's, that's one example of where they, the blending of primary and secondary can be confusing. Because in that situation, anger is actually a secondary emotion. It's yeah. not the primary. The primary is the fear there. Yep. Okay. Yep. Um, okay. So they tend to increase even after the triggering event is over. Uh, they sometimes will cover up or mask primary emotions. Okay, and anger is typically the one that we see doing this. Anger typically masks fear, hurt, disappointment. Okay? And there's other ones back there too. But if you think about anger as in, in the secondary role, anger serves as a mask or it serves as a shield. It puts diff distance between me and another person to protect myself from whatever that primary emotion is that I don't want to feel. Um, anger is also an emotion, I just was talking about that, it tends to push people away, um, put space, it keeps me safe from other vulnerable emotions. Okay. Secondary emotions can interfere with relationships and functioning, especially when we're hiding behind them. Okay? If, if we've put a space between us, we're hiding behind those emotions, it's difficult to connect with someone who can then provide comfort, who can help soothe us, who can help us feel, feel better. I like to use the example of a porcupine. Um, I can't hug a porcupine when their quill is up, okay? But when their quills go down, I'm a little bit more willing to approach, okay? Um, there's a book, let me see. I brought some resources over here. You guys are feel free, uh, can feel free to flip through them, but there's actually this book called I Need a Hug, and it's about a porcupine uh, who just needs a hug, okay? So um, I really recommend that parents, when they're trying to introduce emotional language or when they're trying to make it just a normal part of everyday existence in their family, get some books about it. Read those. Make it a commonplace thing for your family to do. 
All right, shades of emotions. You guys have all experienced this, I'm sure, but our emotions vary in intensity. Our children's emotions do the same thing, okay? So we can think about it as shades of paint. Um, are you a really bright color? Are you more of a faded color? Like how intense is your emotion right now? Children have to be taught how to have language for that. It's not something that just happens innately. So if you think about the feeling of happy and you use happy as kind of your midway point, then you might have on the more mild end, content, pleased. On the upper end, you might have thrilled or excited or overjoyed. Okay, so helping, the, helping your children have language there. And afraid, you might have uncertain or terrified as your two ends. Angry, you might have annoyed or irritated and then enraged on the other end. And if you are not comfortable or familiar enough with the vocabulary around emotions, there's a great resource right there. <coughs> I apologize, I've got a tickle in my throat. And if you need others, Dr. Google is a great resource for that. I don't often recommend Dr. Google, but you can find great emotion charts just by Googling them. You can also talk with your kids about intensity using a numeric rating system. So on a scale of one to 10, that works really well for older kids. Uh, you can also use the concept of a thermometer. So how high is your thermometer getting? How hot is it? And it's really important that we as parents are comfortable expressing and verbalizing our own emotions so that we can model that for our kids. So again, if you're not comfortable with that, don't worry, you are not alone. Lots of adults are not comfortable with that. Um, in fact, I told you about my husband who's an emo, what? I don't own one of those. Um, we literally have this feeling wheel in his nightstand. And as we're having our, our nightly conversations about three feelings that you had during the day, he sometimes will say, hold on, wait, pulls out his wheel and figures out what he felt during the day. So don't ever be afraid to use these. It's a great resource. All right, I already went through this one, just definitions of kind of when we might experience certain um, feelings. One thing I wanna highlight on this slide is no feeling is good and no feeling is bad. They are all information. They are all helpful, they are all valuable. So I like to use languaging more like it's pleasant or unpleasant or comfortable or uncomfortable as opposed to, oh, that's a good feeling or that's a bad feeling because our kids grow up learning, oh good, I want to do more of that. Bad, I get in trouble for, I want to do less of that. And we don't want that around emotions. We want our kids to have a full range of emotions and to recognize that all emotions are valid, all emotions are helpful as information. The physiological experience of emotions is a great way to help kids start recognizing what am I feeling in any one given moment, okay? So when we talk with kids about where in your body do you feel that? What does it feel like? Does it feel tight? Does it feel prickly? Does it feel like butterflies? How does your body feel when you're having this particular emotion? They begin to recognize it within themselves. It also helps them begin to recognize emotions in other people, which is the foundation of empathy. And we want our kids to grow up being able to have empathy for other people. So recognizing facial expressions, body posture, tone of voice, all of that is information that our kids can use to understand, okay, how might that other person be feeling? Awareness of our physiological experience can help kids catch their emotions before they get too big. 
So, oh, like I'm starting to feel that butterfly thing. Oh, I think I'm getting kind of nervous. Okay, what do I need to do to help myself feel better? Or who can I go to to get comforted in that situation? Or, oh, I'm starting to feel that really, like it feels tight in my neck. Oh, that usually means I'm starting to feel angry. What do I need to do to help myself? Who do I need to talk to about that? Um, and then awareness can help children identify potential calming strategies. Um, for someone who the physical experience of anger is tension or pent-up energy, then maybe soothing might look like relaxation strategies or physical activity. Another example would be if someone is afraid and their physical sensation is butterflies, then soothing may take the form of a hug or snuggling under a weighted blanket. Um, so as kids begin to recognize their physiological experiences, they can also begin to identify different coping strategies. And The Grumpy Mon Monkey is a book that I like to use for this concept. Responding to emotions. Some of this is gonna sound like common sense, but it's amazing how challenging it can be, especially when our own emotions get triggered in situations with our kids. So we have to learn to recognize, express, and regulate our own emotions first. We can't teach our kids something we don't know, and we can't model for our kids something we don't do. So learning about our own emotions is critical. Our kids are gonna learn a lot about emotions indirectly, just by observing you and by interacting with you. We wanna incorporate our emotional expression into daily lives, um, both through casual statements, but also through intentional conversations. Uh, so a casual statement might be something like, man, I was really disappointed when I got to the store today and they didn't have my favorite flavor of ice cream. Okay? I talked about what I did at the store and threw in an emotion there. Okay? Or an intentional conversation might be something like, uh, in our family, we do three feelings every night it is my husband's and my younger son's favorite activity of the day. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> Sometimes I'm kind to them and I say, okay, you can get away with two. Um, but it's just, it's a routine. It's part of what we do. And our family members know that's, I better be thinking throughout the day, what are three feelings that I'm having? Because mom's going to ask me about it when we go to bed. Then we want to be able to model emotional regulation with our words and our actions. So examples of that might be, I guess I can't get that flavor of ice cream this time, I'll get it another time. Or instead of getting my favorite flavor, I got my second favorite instead. Okay, that would be modeling with my words. And then modeling with my actions might be something like taking a deep breath, counting backwards from 10, engaging in a physical activity, listening to music or other soothing strategies for myself. And then talking with my kids about, well, this, I'm gonna go take five minutes, I'm gonna go walk on the treadmill, or I'm gonna go take five minutes and I'm gonna do some breathing, I'm gonna listen to this song, and then I'll be ready to, to re-engage with you. But modeling that is important, that's how they learn best. And then identifying the primary emotion helps to better inform our response. So kind of going back to the soccer example, she was embarrassed and then it showed up as anger, but actually there was fear underneath there. I'm so afraid of what my friends are gonna say, I'm gonna get judged. And when we're talking about this with our kids, be curious, not judgmental. Their feelings are their feelings, and their feelings are information, and their feelings are important because they are part of them. Right. We want to be able to put language to what you think they're feeling and why. So for example, it looked like you were really afraid when that big dog came running around the corner. Okay. So it's tentative. Maybe they might say, well, I was at first, but then I, it wasn't a big deal. 
Okay, but you're, again, incorporating this conversation into everyday interactions. Another example might be, you seemed really quiet when those girls came over to talk with us. I wonder if you were feeling kind of shy, or kind of uncomfortable. So again, they get to correct you if that's not accurate. And in so doing, they are having to evaluate and reflect on what did I actually feel? So you're actually creating opportunity for some reflection and some critical thinking as well. I've already mentioned this, but I'll just say it again. Remember that children have to learn awareness and language. It's not something that just automatically happens for them. So they have to learn how to recognize how their body feels and that helps them identify specific emotions. We want to vary our language as we're reflecting their experiences to them so they are hearing different words. Um, it's always good information for me when a kiddo comes in and they only have two emotion words that they can use. Like, okay, we've got to broaden that vocabulary a little bit to help you understand your experience a little bit more. And then help children accept and trust their own feelings. Um, I work with a lot of adults who come in and they can't trust themselves because they weren't taught how to do that growing up. And so remember that feelings in and of themselves are not right or wrong, they're not good or bad. They are simply information about our experiences. And your child's experience of a situation will most likely be different from your experience of the situation. We wanna validate and affirm their experience. We wanna resist the urge to fix the situation which as parents, most of us really don't want our kids to be upset. And if we can fix it, if we can change it, if we can help them in some way, we wanna do that out of a good motivation, a good place. But we've gotta resist that urge just long enough to allow them to process that situation. Then resist the urge to dismiss or minimize. Again, remember, this is all they know so far. They don't have cubby holes. So if they say this was terrible, awful, it was. Validate and affirm that. And then you don't have to agree with your child for their feelings to be valid. You can disagree and that's okay, but their feelings are still legitimate. They're still valid because they are their feelings. Okay. All right, I've thrown a lot of information at you. What questions do you have? I have a question. Yes. If you have a child who has a hard time with drop off mm -hmm. in the morning mm -hmm. and gets very fearful, but you won't come back. Mm. Okay, so the question was, if you have a child who gets very fearful during drop-off in the mornings, how do you navigate that? My initial response to that is, there are lots of ways to do that. <laughs> um, and so part of it is gonna be figuring out experimenting. I love the word experiment because it's, the goal of an experiment is to prove or disprove something. So no matter what happens, it has been successful. Um, but you can talk about, you know, mommy has come back every day. Now, we all as adults know, we've got that adult cognitive development that there might be a time that something happens and mommy doesn't come back, or at least not right away, okay? That's not what we're needing to deal with in that moment. So mommy comes back every time, or this is our routine, this is what we do. Um, there's a great book um, called uh, The Invisible String. Um, that might be a book that would help. It just talks about being connected with the other person by an invisible th string throughout the day. Um, the kissing hand is another one about a raccoon whose mom gives him a kiss on the hand and then 
throughout the day, he can look at his hand and remember that. Um, so talking about, yeah, I know it, it can be hard to go to school. I like spending time with you too, buddy. I'm so glad that we like to be with each other and I will look forward to being with you after school. Um, talking about, you know, this is an opportunity for you to spend time with other people, for you get, to get to know them and to have special time with them. And then we'll have our special time tonight. Um, sometimes it can be helpful to have some very specific plan of tonight after school, here's what we're gonna do. And so you can count down the, the hours. If your kid knows how to tell time, you can do that. Um, so there's lots of different ways that you can do that. Experiment with it. If you get stuck and it's like, I just, I can't find something that works. I would encourage you to check with other parents who maybe have had a similar situation. Um, if you find, I get this question all the time. How do I know when it's time to get professional help for my kiddo? If you find that you have tried everything you can think of and you've consulted with other parents and like you are just plum out of ideas, if the situation is um, impacting your child sufficiently that they are not able to get their daily tasks done, so they're not functioning in their daily role, that would be another indication. Um, and if you're just wanting another opinion, okay? It's never a problem for me as a therapist to have parents bring a kiddo in and say, I'm concerned about this. I meet with a kiddo a couple times and process with the parents and say, you know what, I, I really think that this is normal developmental stuff. Here are some strategies. Or no, actually, like there is something here that I think we could be working on. So it never hurts to consult with somebody. Yes? So when you talked about the pain collars, you know, the emotions, we had one kid, if he was a collar, it would be fluorescent. Okay. Like his emotions are super strong. Mm -hmm. And so it's difficult for us because we really are aware that he has strong emotions, we want to respond to it. However, mm -hmm. when he feels to be either joy, then it's going to be screaming if it's disappointment or fear or anything in that realm. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. going to be just the biggest crying, screaming event. Mm -hmm. And so it really disrupts everything. Sure. Because mm -hmm. the emotion lasts for 20 or 30 mm -hmm. minutes or mm -hmm. however long. And so it's difficult for us because we want to respond to his emotion and validate it. Mm -hmm. But also, the other kid was actually telling a story, and he doesn't get to finish it. <coughs> or we actually get going because school starts in like mm -hmm. 15, you know? So mm -hmm. yeah. what do you do? Great question. So it, the question was basically, how do you help a kiddo who has really big emotions um, that either prevent them from being able to get things done on time or maybe interrupt another child's story and interferes with the other child being able to share their experiences. So basically, how do you deal with big emotions? Um, the first key, again, is you want to validate the emotion and then you can correct the behavior, okay? And so correcting the behavior might look like um, again, there's lots of ways that this could happen. So my head's like going in a million different directions. Um, but it might look like, you know, when we're inside, it's okay for you to jump up and down when you're really happy, but we can't scream. If we're outside and you want to scream, that would be a perfect place to do that. But when we're inside, you can jump up and down, but no screaming, okay? Um, if he's really, really angry or really, really upset, sometimes that's a really important thing to release that 
physical energy because anger comes with physical energy. So figuring out ways that are safe for him to do that in whatever context he's in. Um, basically what you're talking about needing to develop in him is emotional regulation skills. Um, the ability to take an intense emotion and bring it down to a more manageable state. It doesn't necessarily change the emotion, but it just takes it from, whoa, it's really big to really like manageable. I, is it okay if I draw on this, Annalyn? Okay, um, I like to use the idea, the concept of swim lanes. Um, so if any of you were competitive swimmers, <laughs> um, when you are swimming, you can go anywhere you want to in the lane. Okay, now we know if you wanna win races, the best way to do it is to go straight down the middle of your lane, okay? However, sometimes they might be like drafting off of another swimmer, but they're gonna be doing a straight line, okay? Now, when it comes to emotions, we don't want that. We do not want flat, flat line, this is not good. But what we also don't want is we don't want this, okay? We don't want them going all over everybody's swim lanes. We want to have an experience that looks a little bit more like this. So there's variation of the emotion, but you stay within your swim lane. So for a little bit older kid, that might be a helpful um, kind of metaphor or illustration. Um, younger kids, we can talk about we've got to stay in our space. We've got to stay in our bubble or stay in our hula hoop or whatever concept they might understand. Great question. Big emotions are awesome because it means there's a lot of passion and a lot of energy. And at the same time, they can be really challenging. Yeah. So on the other hand. Okay. Um, are there age-appropriate um, to the levels? So like my three-year-old or my five-year-old, sometimes it's kind of alarming when they tattle on me and say, Mom's really stressed or frustrated today. Uh -huh. um, is that appropriate for me to be using those words with it? Sure, yeah, absolutely. So the question was, are there like age appropriate language or words to use at certain developmental stages? Can I say to my three-year-old, mommy was really stressed today? Absolutely. Your three-year-old probably doesn't understand what stressed means though. Um, so it might be better and more understandable for them to kind of tease out what was stressed? Like, was I angry? Was I sad? Was I disappointed? Because stress oftentimes is we're having a lot of emotions all at the same time. <laughs> um, so if you can kind of break that down a little bit, that might be a little bit more helpful for them. But they're gonna hear the word stress for the rest of their life. So introducing to that, that to them is totally fine. Mm -hmm. Yes? Can you speak to repairing with kids if you feel like you missed out in a Absolutely, great question. So the question was, how can you handle repair with your kiddos if you recognize, ooh, I was not my best self in that moment? Um, again, how you're going to approach that is going to depend on your child's age and how much comprehension they have. Sometimes it's just as simple as, I am sorry, mommy shouldn't have yelled at you, or I'm sorry, daddy said something that I didn't mean, or you know what, just really short, really brief. But the apology is key. Okay? because that recognizes I have done something that I know I shouldn't have done and I can own that and I can express that to another person. Those are the skills we want our kids to have. Okay? As kids get older, you can have more in-depth conversations about why you did what you did or why you wish you had done something different or how you wish you would have responded differently in those situations. But absolutely apologizing and taking ownership for it. That's what we want to model for our kids. We're human too. <laughs> yes? Um, how would you suggest handling friends that might 
have the big emotions, mm -hmm. it might interfere or disrupt. Um, you know, so they're not my child, right. but like maybe making that a learning opportunity, or since I can't discipline it or educate that other child, how mm -hmm. do I teach my children about staying in their own lane? Mm -hmm. So the question was, how can we like teach our kids in the situation where a, a friend has really big emotions? So how can we address a friend's big emotions with our kids? We're not going to parent or discipline or correct the other child, but we're addressing it with our child. Um, first and foremost, I would encourage you to ask. So I noticed that Susie seemed to have some really big feelings today. Did you see that? And just see if your kid even noticed it. Because sometimes we as parents notice things and we're like, ooh, and our kid's going, what? I don't know. <laughs> and so it's always good to check in with our kiddo first to see what did they experience? What did they notice? And then that might give you some direction. Like if it totally didn't register for them, drop it, let it go. But if they noticed, then you can ask them again with curiosity, well, what did you notice happening? Or what did you think about what was happening? Or how did you feel when they were acting in this particular way? So again, it's all about curiosity and finding out what your child's perspective is. Yes? I've always been fearful for the years that we would give instruction like about solving a challenge with a friend at school or something like, well, maybe just you know, stay away from for a couple of days, mm -hmm. some space. And then they may go to school and say, my parents say I should stay away from <laughs> yep. I, uh, like, is there a way to say this is how you should solve this problem, but you need to, you know, keep our our, our conversation private? Yeah. Yep. So basically, the question is, how can we help our kids or coach our kids about private conversations that need to be stay that need to stay within our household? You can use whatever languaging you want to around that. Um, the, the wording that we chose to use with our kids is what we talk about here at home needs to stay here at home unless we tell you otherwise. And so that way, you know, if, you know, if we're saying, you know, here's something that's going on, this is something that can be public knowledge, then my kids know, okay, we can talk about this with other people. My kids also know they can ask, okay, so mom, you told me this, is it okay if I talk about it with somebody else? Um, but yes, that, that is a legit concern of like, what are they, how are they gonna represent what I just said to them? Another way that you can approach it a little bit differently is to ask your child to repeat back to you what they just heard you say. And then based on what their understanding was, then you can offer a little bit more clarification or a little bit more explanation of here's why I think that's a good idea or here's why I suggested that. And that's probably something that we wanna keep between us or that we don't wanna share with a lot of other people. Yeah. How do you find that sensory <clears throat> reflexes and integration come in? Because my mm -hmm. kids are, I have a very big emotion child too. Like she is grand, like grand. And so she just, I learned it's just that it's more sensory integration mm -hmm. stuff going on. Mm -hmm. And so when my kids have all those, I have a mini trampoline in our living room. Mm -hmm. And I have an almost eight year old. And when they're out of control, I'm like, go give me 25 jumps on your right leg. Go give me 25 jumps on your left leg. And so mm -hmm. how much do you find that the sensory integration stuff comes into play with these emotions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, that can be mislabeled, like, oh, you're being inappropriate, but it's just yeah. sensory stuff. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So the question is, how do we handle the impact of sensory integration dysfunction or sensory problems and how it affects the emotional experience? 
Absolutely. Bottom line, it comes down to knowing your kiddo. Like, so I, my older son actually has sensory integration dysfunction. And so we dealt with that a lot growing up. So we had to recognize, okay, if he's throwing a tantrum, my very first question had to be, what's happening right now? Like, is the light too bright? Is the sound too loud? Did he smell something that was unpleasant? Is he standing in grass? Like, so having to be aware, okay, these are some of my kiddos triggers. If none of those things are happening, then we go to the next level. Okay, this is not the sensory stuff. This is an emotional stuff and we need to deal with the emotions. If it's a sensory thing, you've got to deal with the sensory stuff first because they're, they're literally overwhelmed by that and they won't be able to engage any other conversation. Can you give different, in our home, mm -hmm. we have language that I'm working on training, meaning it's too much. So mm -hmm. My husband's in a really bad car accident and he ended up with a brain injury. Mm -hmm. And so he can get overstimulated mm -hmm. like super quick, especially with two small children. Yeah. And sound is one of his really quick triggers. Mm -hmm. So he started like, it's too much. And we know, okay, that means daddy needs space. So now <laughs> I'm noticing like, my kids will say, it's too much. And I don't want to teach them that it's too much. You can't do that. Mm -hmm. Like, can you give me some suggestions of other words? Because it's too much is a, I can't do it mm -hmm. thing. And mm -hmm. I think that that's negative. So I'm working on trying to change the level, but I'll be honest, I've been in the, it's too much for sure. a very long time that yeah. I am stuck. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the question is, basically, like, there's a bigger question here of when we get stuck, what do we do? Um, but specifically to your situation of you've gotten stuck in this, this languaging of it's too much, it's too much, and what else could you try? I actually have some great friends who use the I need a break languaging. Um, so daddy needs a touch break. So they have a very cuddly child who wants to hug and climb and do monkey stuff all over. Um, and when it gets to be too much, they just simply say, I need a touch break and they have taught their child that that means okay you need to not touch me for a little bit sometimes they'll set a timer for that I need a five-minute touch break um, but you could also do I need a sound break um, or I need a stimulation break um, whatever languaging would fit with your child's age um, but what specifically are you needing a break from yeah. rather than the global it's too much being very specific here's actually what I'm needing a break from so like you could sit next to me if you wanted to, but just don't talk for a few minutes. Mm -hmm. All right, how are we doing on time? We about ready to wrap up? Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you.
So you'll see there are magnets in there. I think they're very fun. I will say our elementary kid at home, um, AMT, even showed Dana when she got here today. There's a dabbing dog, and it is his favorite. Uh, <laughs> I have a feeling he might be choosing that emotion a lot. Um, but you'll see that emotions are more simplistic for our preschool kids, and then there are like a range of emotions for our elementary kids. Both of them tie back to the Bible and God's wisdom. Now, obviously, these are just samples of scripture. I know that you all can open up your Bibles and find multiple ways, but we hope that you'll tie these into, wow, like this is what God says about this emotion. It's just another uh, validation and hopefully fur furthering their faith. Um, elementary kids have a chance to write. Preschool, we're really just trying to get them to start expressing these emotions. So we can't wait to hear, and we do want to hear. I might even be reaching out to you um, to see how the kids are going. Um, I also would love suggestions on how we can make it better, because I do already know, I think our Dana's not even pressed yet. Um, but our Aletha Women's um, team is, it is on, on the move for them to do it. So we want to continue improving, and I also Eva mentioned to Dana, we want to see, like, what's the next step? Like, what are you wanting um, as a parent and needing um, that we can come alongside? So if the only other thing I want to speak on is if you have, like, a four- or five-year-old and they're almost elementary, we have plenty of kids. So please take the elementary kit also. If it's there's not one up here, there are more downstairs, and we have even have more in a room. So um, take what you need. Also take and give to neighbors. Uh, we want these kids to be used. So... Thank you um, for coming tonight. We will have these available for others too on Sundays for the next few weeks. So. Thank you. Thanks again.